Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Classic Lenses podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm hosting this podcast from Stoke-on-Trent in the UK. Joining me today are Carl Havens in Gainesville, Florida. Hello, Carl. Good morning, Simon. And we have Johnny Sisson in Chicago. Hello, Johnny. Good day, all. Last week, it was great to have Mike Ekman on the show with his amazing knowledge of old cameras. Uh, so I'd like to thank Mike once again for being a great guest. This week, Johnny and Carl are going to be talking about lenses they've been using over the last few months. And I'm going to be talking about a quick and dirty 50mm sonar test I did over this weekend. Um, but before we talk about those topics, here's Johnny with some feedback from last week. All right, episode 15, feedback. Doesn't episode 15 have a nice sound to it? It sounds like we're really serious about this or something. I like that. Um, okay, so uh, feedback. James Thorpe said, uh, great episode, and he mentioned that uh, Carl's Flickr, extensive Flickr album collection was very helpful as a reference and resource, so uh, kudos to Carl. Nelson Mullen said he really enjoyed the show, and special thanks to Mike for everything that he does on uh, his website, um, and he also went and bought a Petri after uh, listening to the episode. So another member of the Petri Greenomatic gang there. Uh, and then Vlad Karen, I, we owe we owe Vlad an apology, I guess. He got in trouble um, at work because he was sitting in the car listening to the podcast and was late getting into work. So um, sorry about that, Vlad. Uh, also from last week, wanted to mention the uh, poll that we had in in Vintage Camera Collectors. Uh, we had the poll about the coolest fixed lens RF camera. Um, we had uh, four contenders, of course. We had Mike's Aries 35 3L. Uh, we had my Petri F1.9 color corrected super. We had Simon Zorky 10 and Carl's Petri 7S. Uh, no big surprise, I think, that the they Aries has the biggest following out there. Uh, it is a great camera. So that 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 was a winner, of course, was, was Mike uh, with that camera. Um, the F 1.9 color corrected super, my green nomadic was second. And then we had, uh, tied for bronze. We had the Zorky 10 and the Petri S that Simon and Carl had their family and friends vote for, uh, Johnny, with three votes each. I was going to say, Johnny, would I, would I be correct in saying that, uh, between the Carl and myself, one of us voted for our own camera. That may be true. Yes. I think that may be true. Although I think maybe someone may have changed that vote out of uh, shame. So <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't have any comment here. <laughs> I, so I, uh, I, 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 I uh, clicked the, the, the button next to Johnny's camera and did it by mistake. So I fixed it later. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I will say, coming out of coming out of this, uh, I have talked to at least three people or it noted at least three or four examples of people who have since bought a Petri Greenomatic in the past week since this show has aired. Um, so Mike, Mike Novak actually had a comment about, about this. He said, is this a social experiment or a cult? And uh, I, my comment was, it's definitely a cult and we drink green Kool-Aid. So um, if you haven't picked up your uh, Petri Greenomatic, please do so and please join the Petri Greenomatic users group on Facebook. Um, so we can all uh, enjoy the the wonders of the greenomatic system. <laughs> I've, I've got to say, Johnny, I'm I'm one of those people as well. That's right. Uh, Congratulations. And but it's tinged with a little bit of disappointment because I, I saw a seven S, um, and it was at a great price, and it had the fifty one point eight lens, 
And I thought to myself, oh, I've got to get that one because that's going to be better than Carl's because Carl's got the, four, uh, the 45 right. 2.8. And then... No, it's one, I have a 1.8. Exactly, exactly. You told me after, after I was feeling like quite smug with myself that I've got a better <laughs> one than Carl's. It turns out I've just got the same as Carl's. <laughs> there's always more. There's that, there's that one on eBay. I, I guess we won't mention the seller's name, but... Um, somebody has the same exact one that I have priced at something around 500 pounds um, with no returns from uh, some obscure place on the globe. It's not an obscure place. I just don't want to <laughs> direct anybody towards a $500 <laughs> camera that actually should be selling for about $50. So, um, <laughs> so I, it's going to be interesting to see <laughs> where things go with that camera because I literally talked to people in person at the shop this week who have bought one um, since we've been talking about it. And and at least, what, four members of the admin team at, at Photography with Classic Lenses now have this camera. Um, so, it yeah, it's definitely a cult. <laughs> uh, other news this week, um, I thought it was notable to mention that Photography with Classic Lenses uh, passed the 8,000 member mark this week which yeah i'm i doesn't it seem like you we just were thinking wow five thousand members was that just like am i crazy or that was not that was just a few months ago it feels like yep. <laughs> uh i'm just gonna check the group insights real quick here while we're while we're chatting and see if i can let's see last 28 days last 60 days let's just check our numbers here we had seven thousand members back in february so we've wow, that's that's just crazy. Anyhow, um, I thought that was really notable that we've we've now surpassed eight thousand members. Not that uh, member count is really necessarily what we're after. I think <laughs> I think we've gotten better at uh, screening out uh, maybe folks who are not going to be uh, active and contributing members of the group from the get go. Guys, admin well, team. Well, yeah. I think it's I, mean, I think it's fair to say that um, certainly some of the. Uh, um, members of the admin team are, are, are stricter than others, and I, I think <laughs> I, I think that clo close to around about five percent of applicants uh, get get through if uh, certain members of the admin team are, are, are watching out for right. their members. That's yeah, right. yeah, or, yeah, or lower. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I, yeah. So the membership thing is interesting, but I what I really like is that um, it's been very clear to me that many more people are actively posting and commenting than used to be the case even a year ago. Yeah, that, that, yeah. that's, that's yeah. absolutely the case. And that, that's another thing I was, I've was i been thinking recently. I'm I'm struggling to keep up with the group now. Um, there, there are things yeah. that go by and then somebody will resurrect a post from a previous day and I'll think, and, and, and I'll think wow, what a great photo on it. Why, why didn't I see that? Yeah, so I'm, I'm missing so many things. Yeah, and we're seeing a, we're seeing lenses that I've never heard of before. We're seeing a lot of shots that aren't flowers. Um, all, sorts of, <laughs> all, all, sorts, all sorts of good things are happening. I mean, we're going, I we're going in a good direction, guys. I can't remember who, who, who it was, but somebody apologized um, for taking the shot. Uh, they had a, a they, they did a dog shot because there were no flowers available for their test shot. <laughs> This week on photography with dogs and flowers and classic lenses. <laughs> uh, all right, so we had so we had that, and I, the other one I thought was worth speaking of exactly uh, exactly that. Isn't it funny how certain lenses seem to start trending out of nowhere? 
Oh yeah. Um, I, right. I mean, I, I, I've certainly noticed that, you know, for quite a, a while, but I mean, it, it just seems to happen. Um, uh, Jason, uh, hold on a second. I just want to go to the discussion, see if I can find, um, Jason's. So I want to find out who is responsible for, uh, the mentioning the, yeah, the Fujinon. <laughs> I'm almost wanting to buy one now because of the, Everyone's posting. It's a yeah. It's a. I think we're speaking here. The Fujinon. I believe it's a fifty-five. Is that correct, guys? Fifty-five. Yeah, it's a uh, two point two. Which I, it's a lens that that I, probably many of us have. I know I have one. Um, it's essentially it's a really a funny lens to talk about. I mean, it it's a super super cheap in terms of build quality, um, and it's essentially just a it's a it's it's basically a Tessar with an extra element to further overcorrect the test art at 2.2 from 2.8. So at 2.2, it's doing all kinds of goofy things. Um, it's, it's making, you know, soap bubble bouquet, which I know people, a lot of people love that. So I, it's a, I would say it's a lens worth picking up just for fun. Cause I mean, it's cheap and it's definitely full of character. Um, so that one, that one uh, seems to have gotten a lot of interest here. In the when, past week, which I thought was notable. When you say it's cheap, though, it, it's it's definitely a lens that's on the rise. Um, oh, is it really? Oh, yeah. it is. Yeah, they're probably wow. at, at least twice as expensive now as they were uh, twelve months ago. It's God, that's crazy. Yeah, and so wow. those soap bubbles, those soap bubbles are uh, driving. Yeah, it driving it up. I mean, I I picked one up. I don't know about a year ago for I want to say twenty five bucks or something like that. Um, and got it, you know, just to kind of goof around with. And uh, <laughs> yeah, anyway, well, I, I guess we will see where the prices go with that. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Be an interesting one. Okay. Okay. Um, well, let's go over to Carl. Yes. Yeah, sure. So we're talking about lenses that we've been using frequently recently, I guess, is what I interpreted the theme to be. And um, I guess if you've been watching the page, I've been posting a lot of pictures with a Carl Zeiss Jenna Pancolor 50 millimeter f2 lens that I picked up about a month and a half ago uh, from someone uh, in Europe who had cleaned it and adjusted it and um, so it's beautiful when it arrived it was in really good condition and um, I used to have a Pancolor 50 f1.8 and I thought it was that was kind of okay I had a Raleigh planner f one point fifty one point eight at the same time and it had another fifty one point eight and I kind of concluded they were all about the same except maybe the the flare was a little bit different and um, I, I unloaded them all because they just didn't wow me but this lens there's something about the lens that I, I like um, I like using it it's fun to use it's cool looking lens it isn't coated um, it makes a really neat flare early in the morning or late in the evening that I can't get with other lenses and um, you have to spend some time getting it right so it doesn't overwhelm the picture, but it can complement the photo nicely. Um, sharp as a tack. Um, when it's, well, at, F, at F2, that's not saying that much. It's not like it's an F1.4 lens, but it's, it's, it's sharp all the way through. And um, it has a really nice look. The contrast is great. You can just pop it into focus really quick. The lens I have is a, um, a bizarre looking lens. And when we post our block of images leading into the podcast, maybe we'll have one that has this, this lens because um, it, ha so mine's an exact amount, uh, but I think regardless of the amount, um, this version is, which is called a star Wars version. So the, um, at the front end of the lens is, is a focus ring, which is a little bit 
tough to get used to because uh, when I first started taking photos of it, I noticed that if I didn't watch, I was going to have my fingers in the picture. Mm. And so you have to, <laughs> it's not a really wide focus ring. So you have to grip, grip it a little bit differently. And then it's a zebra looking ring. And then you get to the, um, the distance um, indications below that in feet and meters. And then there's this interesting ring above the um, aperture ring that has these strange black, uh, so it's silver ring and it has these strange black shapes that in the center they're triangles and then they go into um, polygons that are different shapes as you move outward and they sort of angle towards the center. And so um, I, and so people call this a Star Wars lens and then and no, and then the aperture ring is a zebra ring. So uh, it's a very bizarre looking thing and so I, I've looked online like where did the name come from and so I just pulled the one up just now for fun and and so you know people are very definitive about it where it came from. Oh well it's from uh, because at the beginning of every Star Wars movie when they show the text moving along it gets narrower as it goes away from you and those are the shapes on the thing and then and then there's another one no it isn't that it's a, if you look at some of the uh, empires spaceships they have shapes like that no, no it's it's uh, the uniforms of the um, officers uh, in the in the empire have these these black and white alternating shapes and then at the very end of this one attila commented sometime in, somebody just started calling it star wars and then after that, that's what people call it. <laughs> so, so I don't know. Just, just so we're clear, those those strange markings are the depth of field scale. But, They're uh, scale. That's right. And, there, yeah. and this one has that, and it has two little yeah. things that look like little pinchers that come in with the aperture um, adjustment, and they give you an indication of the depth of field that you're going to Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, it's just it's, an, it's odd the way they angle in like that. And um, – so this one's really nice. I, I think that these have a reputation for becoming very stiff, um, and so that's why I, I bought one where the where the guy had had just uh, lubricated it. Um, it's, it's a little, it's just nicely dampened now. So so hopefully it'll stay that way. And um, it's six blades, and um, they're curved, very curved six blades. So when you close it down, it doesn't give a real sharp. Um, six edge thing. So anyway, I like that lens. I've taken all different kinds of photos, bokeh shots, landscape shots, um, and and um, it sits on the camera a lot. And I'll probably stick it back on there today. I just like it. And I've used it on the Fuji, and it was great. And then I put it on the Sony, and it was also great. And that's one of the things I want to dive into this a little bit today, because as I've gotten the um, going through my old lenses saying like okay so which lenses that were really good on the fuji are still good on the sony and which ones that were kind of ah, okay on the fuji or, or came, came to life on the sony and this lens is pretty similar on the two cameras i'm not sure why but anyway so that that's the deal with that um then I, i've been i've been using in the last couple of days two canon ltm lenses that i have and i've been using them on my Sony camera, and prior to that, I had used them on the Fuji. So um, I'm going to talk about the 35 2.8 a little later because I think Johnny's going to talk about um, LTM 35 millimeter lenses. Um, that lens is great on the Fuji, and it's excellent on the Sony. I found that out yesterday. Um, the 50 LTM 1.4 is a fantastic lens, and um, I like to use it mainly on my rangefinder cameras, especially my Canon 7. Um, it's a small lens, so it's also nice on the Fuji, um, nice on the Sony. But I got to tell you, um, I have two Canon lenses sitting here in front of me. We've got this LTM 
that's nice and compact. It only weighs 200 grams. And um, I've got this giant heavy FL 51.4 that weighs over 400 grams. And it's about twice as big. And on my Sony camera, I don't think that there's a heck of a lot of difference in the overall image quality between the two. Um, in fact, I might like the FL lens a little bit better. Um, and, and there are certain reasons for that. I, I, I think it's a little bit brighter. I like the bokeh a little bit better. They both give a nice 3D pop. Um, I, and, and, and one of my biggest peeves is I don't like the blades on the on the LTM lens because they do something that we've talked about before and it's done for a particular reason. And um, when you get down to F2.8, the um, if, if you take a shot with bokeh balls, which I try not to do with this lens because of this, it looks like a sawtooth. And the, um, and, and yet it has, it has a, a, lar a large number of blades. Let's see, nine, nine or 10 blades. The FL lens, only has eight blades, but they and it's and it's an SLR camera lens. But they've taken the blades and they've rounded them so much that they look like blades out of a out of a Jupiter three or something. And closing it down through the whole range, even down well, especially down to f four, you're still looking at almost a circle. So um, I really like that because I like to shoot sometimes and have a focus shot at f two or f two point eight. Or you're going to see the things in the back, the vocal balls in the background, and and they're they're going to look like circles at f2.8 for sure. So, um, what what am I thinking about these two things? Well, I'm thinking that I'm not going to use this. Um, I'm not probably not going to be using this um, LTM lens that much anymore on my Sony uh, because I'll just stick the Canon on it. But on my on my Fuji, this the FL is just too damn big. It's just, it weighs more than the camera. Um, my XE2 weighs 450 grams and the lens weighs 400 grams. And that's not a very good pairing. But um, the cost differential is just amazing. I mean, uh, to get a, a mint condition LTM 51.4, we're talking 300 to $350. I think I paid 325, 300 for mine, maybe. I came, but, but it came on a, a Canon 7 for that price. And the, um, the FL lens, well, the one I'm holding in my hand, when I bought it, I, I paid $35 for it. That, that was three or four years ago. And now they've gone up in price, and now they're into the $100 range. But you can keep an eye on them on eBay, and you can sometimes find these things for $70. And it's just, especially on full frame, it's just delightful. And so this is an example of a lens that comes alive on full frame. I always said that this was a great lens when I had in my Olympus, and I always said it was a good lens when I used it a few times on the Fuji, even though it was a bit big. But when I put it on the Sony, of all the lenses where I've compared, it just blew me away. Um, and that um, the, all of the beautiful bokeh balls that were outside of what I ever had seen before, and the fact that without even trying, walking around in an art show, I was taking photos of people and getting 3D pop from f1.4 up to f2.8 it was just it was astounding so um aside from it being really heavy and large i like it and and those are two that i've been using a lot and let's see i don't have anything more to say right now johnny because i'm going to wait and we can talk together about the the wider length i was going to say carl if i there's a couple of uh things that uh i'd like to go go back on um yep Okay. Um, first one, going going back to the uh, your F two Pancolar. Um, okay. Just just a, a quick one. This and that's uh, is it is it a radioactive lens then, or is it 
uh, perfectly clear. It's perfectly clear. Right. So, clear so, all the way through. Yeah. Yep. In my head, it was one that I thought might have been, but I think we're probably talking about some of the faster ones, I'm guessing. I'm taking it off of the mount. No, it's just as clear as it looks. When I open it up and look through it, it actually, the optics are so beautiful that it looks like I'm just looking through air from the back to the front. Mm. And, and there's no color at all on this one. And I don't know that it's a, well, if the date is reflected in the serial number, this is a 1971. Uh, no, no, not, not in the same way as um, you don't think so, so? Soviet okay. lenses, no. Okay, so this is 71, 84, 5, 4, 5. We would have to look it up then to yeah, find the date. That, that That's it. You, you, can, you can get the numbers from... Um, um, from yep. various websites, but uh, yep. it's it's not it's not a quick and easy rule in the in the same way. So we'd um, have to check it out. Yeah. Yep. Another, yeah. Another thing, another thing that was um, uh, sparked my interest there was when you were describing the the shape of the aperture blades on the FL lens. Yeah. Um, because they're, they're they're rounded. I assume it's, it's it's. Did you say it's six blades? Is it? No, it's eight. It's, oh, eight, it's round. eight. Eight rounded. Okay, that, I mean that's, that's that's really really good. And it, it just one. I just wonder why um, more manufacturers um, didn't use rounded blades. I mean, it's it's a feature now. You know, some a new lens might launch now, and they'll say, and it's got rounded blades. I'm just wondering why. It seemed that well, they were able to do them on the FL. Why? Why did manufacturers seem to stop doing? Yeah, it's just, just odd. Yeah, it, I mean it. It primarily had to do with the SLR mechanism and the the auto stop down feature at the time. So, which was new. I mean, we have to keep in mind that was a that was a really new feature in the early '60s. You know, lenses had had not done that in the past. Um, but, but is the is the FL a, a ah, that's a, that's a point actually because I know that the the 58 1.2 has has got a really odd. Uh, arrangement for the for for the aperture. Um, yeah. It's a sort of a preset and sort of something weird. Um, is it a conventional? Is is the fifty one point four FL? Is that just a conventional automatic, or is it uh, a weird one uh, like the like the fifty eight Carl? No, it isn't odd at all. I mean, it has an auto manual switch on it, but it's not one of those bizarre things with two rings like that one point two lens has on it. Yeah. It's conventional, so, and I like it too because the aperture ring has two parts that protrude out on the so it's a silver heavy metal ring and it has two pieces on either side that protrude out that you can hold on to with your hand that helps you to turn it and um, otherwise it's embedded into the into the body and oh and by the way so I like this so much that while we were talking it just found one for $69 on eBay and <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in mint mint condition 69 bucks and these and the average price is $109 and i just bought it so i'm just to have a, a backup one a second one so there but we have it. we're not even I, halfway through the podcast and I'm telling you what, the, the Carl's already these, bought a lens <laughs> I, this is a lens that this is a lens that over the last couple of years i've looked at the price periodically because i like it so much and it, it literally has gone up from the 30 yeah. to 35 dollar range to 50 to mint ones now are 125 to and more yeah and, and, and when, it's i think that's really notable because that price rise i think well there's an overall price rise probably of just you know manual focus stuff but that the fl lenses are really weird i mean they they were really only made for a, a camera system that existed for a few years um 
they don't work on most FD cameras. I mean, you, you have to use them in stop down metering mode, which is weird. So they're for a long time, they were like the redheaded stepchild of Canon lenses that nobody wanted, which is why they were so cheap. But now that people can adapt them easily, they're shooting up in price because, you know, people like us doing what we do with them. Um, so they're, they're, they're great lenses. They just, they, they've always been kind of the odd man out. So if people want to go on eBay now and find a near mint one, I just bought that cheap one. <laughs> but but if you wait a while, I'll sell it to you for a hundred dollars. <laughs> but, but going back to the those those rounded uh, rounded aperture blades, was John, Johnny? I, I know where you, you you started talking about that, but really, I yeah. think it was it was more about a conversation about presets. I think you were seemed to be heading down that that direction because I'm, uh-huh. because ultimately it is a an automatic lens, um, so. Uh, I, I see no no reason why well, later automatic lenses could could not also be round as well. But, well, but it, but that's what I mean. It was the the idea of automatic stop down lenses happening with, at the moment that you know the the photo was being made was still a relatively new feature, and I don't know that everyone was on the same. Not all designs were the same at that time because not all those um, mechanisms worked the same way. So that that's why you see, you know, lenses from the fifties that might have been on like an Exacta with you know fifteen blades, and then by the time we're into the around nineteen seventy, everything had five or six blades. It's because they were refining, you know, the auto aperture feature, and that that the the lens had to open and close instantly at the moment the photo was taken, which actually Mike Ekman mentioned on the last show. Right. So, I mean, that had a, it was more, they were less concerned about the, um, the curve blades as they would affect the character of the out of focus areas of the photo than they were about the mechanics of the lens stopping down instantly. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's really about that. And I don't, this, the question about the curved and straight blades and, Boca balls and all that was re- is really a discussion that uh, comes much later after the time when these lenses were first made, you know. So it, it has really everything to do with manufacturing and economics on the part of the lens manufacturers and also probably just um, where they were in terms of design capabilities at, at the time. Uh, so, I mean, today, you know, looking backwards, it's, you know, we can judge them differently, but it probably wasn't a primary concern at the time. Um, also, I think it's interesting to note, you know, since Simon or since Carl kind of brought it up about a lot of these Canon lenses at a certain point in the aperture range, and I'm looking at a few of them here in front of me, um, you know, by the time you get to F 2.8 through about F 5.6, these Canon lenses have, um, we would call it like a sawtooth look to the aperture opening. But if you see that on film versus on digital, it doesn't really have the same look. I mean, it, it's there, but I think uh, film bokeh has a much different character than digital bokeh does. And I, it, to me, it's a much softer character because the film grain you know, helps to soften it up. It, it's just I think it, it looks really different film than it does on digital so it, it's just we're judging them by standards that didn't really exist at the time does that make sense yeah well the, there's a couple of things there um the, the first one is generally speaking bokeable shots on film didn't really happen especially with, yeah. sh- with with slower shutter speeds 
Right. Um, so, uh, so that that that's I guess that's the first point. The second point is that um, that shape, and we've t- we talked about this once before. Um, yeah. The, the shape and the, and the sawtooth has, has got something to do with um, folk, de- dealing with the focus shift that the yep. problems you sometimes get uh, with uh, with sonar lenses, I believe. Um, yeah. Um, and of course, there's one final uh, point about. Uh, looking at fifty millimeter lens on film, uh, Carl, uh, with your bokeables there is the the advantage for you is that there'll be no uh, balsam separation uh, visible for oh, you. Oh yeah, right, and that's why I shot that image yesterday at f two point eight, when I really would have loved to have shot it at f one point four of that beer can, and um, I can't do that because then you would have criticized me for. <laughs> Having vocal balls that look like they had worms inside of them, and it, and it and it and it bugs the hell out of me that I have this lens and um, have no way to return it because I, I you know I didn't find out about it till till much later, and um, man I'll tell you you know it's not the seller's fault the seller couldn't tell I couldn't tell you can't see it I couldn't yeah. see it with a I can't looking at it now with again with a flashlight I can't see it I have to take a photograph with it in order to know. So, but it, yeah. anyway, yeah, it's, I, I don't have to worry about it on the uh, on the Canon rangefinder. No, no. Okay, um, I think we'll have a have a chat about Johnny's lenses now. So uh, go ahead, go ahead, Johnny. All right. Um, well, I mean the the one lens that I've I've been using uh, the most so far this year by far um, is the Canon. 35 uh, f 2.8 rangefinder lens, uh, which let me pull up some details over here on the Canon Museum. If you haven't visited the Canon Museum site on the on the web, it's a great resource. Uh, so I'm going to pull that lens up and I'll give a couple of details on it here. Where is it? 35. Okay, there it is. So I'm I'm going to be speaking uh, about the uh, Canon Serenar 35 millimeter f 2.8 version one. Uh, which was introduced in 1951. Uh, so it's the smaller silver version of this lens, you know, silver colored version of this lens. Uh, very heavy, uh, small little, you know, uh, solid looking lens. Um, and I've been using this one pretty much exclusively on the Canon 4SB, which I've talked about over several episodes now, uh, but I've I've used this combination far more than any other camera this year. I, I I think I've shot probably since the start of the year probably twenty rolls of film uh, with this setup. And the more I use it, the more I really love it. And um, a few things that I've I've really just kind of distilled in my thinking about this lens, especially now that I have uh, another lens I'm going to mention, which is I have the uh, the Canon. Uh, 35 f2 uh, lens which I just received from Japan um, to use on my Canon P Um, so I guess what I want to talk about is well why if I now have a 35 f2 and a 35 2.8 why would I not be using the 35 f2 as my primary lens on the Canon 4SB versus the 35 uh, 2.8 you know you'd think all right faster aperture lens right so what it comes down to, and this is really what made me stop and think about my whole experience with the Canon 4SB with this lens, is the older design lens, um, it, it has, it, it's it's really the mechanics of it, which is, it's very different from the later uh, 
f2 lens and what really sets it apart is the um, focus tab on the lens and the long focus throw i'm looking at it i'm trying to look at the degrees here i guess it would be like a 180 degree focus throw um, and the reason that works so well on the canon 4sb which is you know a barnack like a rangefinder clone um, is that when you're using this lens as a probably as a street shooter as an everyday sort of shooter some things that are really nice about how this lens functions really stand out for me um the first is if you know i'm I'm shooting this lens primarily stop down at probably f8 or f11 for street shooting when i'm walking around downtown in chicago um and at at f8 f11 the focus tab is straight down um I guess if you're you know looking at the top of the camera, the focus tab is directly at the bottom of the camera. So it's kind of uh, you know perpendicular to the bottom of the camera. And the focus distance with the tab in that position is right about 15 feet. So and the thing that's special about that is that if you preset a lens like this, a 35 millimeter lens at 12 to 15 feet at f11, you basically have everything in focus. You have a really deep depth of field. The depth of field on the scale, if you set it there, is basically at f11 is infinity to, let's say, six feet. I always kind of cheat that by one stop. So if you look at it that way, the depth of field scale is reading um, 50 feet to about uh, six feet, five feet, seven feet, let's call it, on the depth of field scale. So, so in other words, it, you have a massive depth of field at 15 feet that works in most situations. Now, here's the thing that's really interesting. If I turn that focus tab um, to the, I guess it would be like the 45 degree mark. So now it's, it's, it's uh, perpendicular to the, the side of the camera versus the bottom. Um, the focus distance is now set at about five feet. So without really thinking about taking a shot, let's say I'm going from a street shot where I'm getting kind of a wideish view um, of the street to more of like a street portrait shot where maybe it's one individual person at five or six feet without even looking at the lens, without even focusing, I can just turn that tab from let's call it 90 degrees to 45 degrees. And it's basically perfectly preset for, um, that photo that I want to take. And to me, it that's it's like this um, kind of the magic of using the Barnack style camera is that um, in some ways it's a very primitive camera. It's a really simple camera, but that also frees up a lot of like brain space to not think about making the mechanics of a photo, if that makes sense. So in other words, I don't have to spend any time thinking about focusing, thinking about um, you know some of those technical details. I can just turn with a move of the fingertip, I can turn the focus tab from 90 degrees to 45 degrees. And I know that the camera is going to be basically focused in the right spot. So it's odd to me or amazing to me thinking about how a really primitive camera um, is sort of the most simple creative tool to use because it allows your brain to just do other things creatively. There's no meter on it. Um, there's no, I don't even use the built-in, you know, viewfinder, rangefinder. I use the um, uh, 
an external viewfinder on the top of the camera, which gives me a really big, bright view and uh, gives me illuminated frame lines. So the, what's really, I guess, become clear to me is the magic of the Barnack style camera <laughs> and using a lens like this Canon uh, 35 2.8 which is just so well thought out for this style of shooting. Um, and the F2 lens, by contrast, has a very short focus throw. So that, in other words, the focus range from infinity to closest focus is about 45 degrees versus 180 degrees. So the, the 2.8 lens is going to be continuing to live on my Canon 4SB, which is going to be continuing to live in my camera bag um, for the foreseeable future, because I'm just finding it to be uh, such a fantastic experience to use it for just kind of daily um, shooting on the street, which is you know mostly what I'm what I what I do is I just take pictures while I walk around. Um, so that lens is is really been my primary now for uh, since the start of the year. Um, now that I have the uh, uh, the Canon P uh, with the 35 f2 i'm also planning to use that as a street shooting lens but just kind of in a different style if that makes sense it's really it handles more like an slr lens um and the canon p handles like more like an slr than a rangefinder in a lot of ways so it's it's really a different style of i guess photography and the the, the design of the camera and lens combination um will probably lead me to shoot it in a slightly different way than i shoot the canon 4sb so um those are my, I guess, my two lenses that I've wanted to talk about. I've really used only one of them extensively up till now, but I plan on using the other one as well. And then seeing how um, the design affects the way I use them is what I'm looking forward to finding out. So, Johnny, your 35 2.8, is it the same lens that I have? No, you, you're the one that you have. I'm just going to look this up as well since I'm here. It behaves the, the way you describe exactly the way you described when it's at um, at um, a, a focus setup for infinity to six feet. Yeah. The tab is on the right on the bottom. And when I bring it up to the side, it's right at five or six feet. Exactly yeah, what you yeah, yeah, yeah. So you 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 have the version two of the lens, um, which came out in 1957. So and I have the version one that was 1951. So you have the the a newer design of the same, essentially a newer version of the same lens that has okay. a different physical construction, but it operates almost okay. essentially the same way, right? Okay. So they're they're similar lenses in terms of operation and in terms of that focus throw. It's just a it's just a different you know, physical design. Um, but they, they should be in actual use. They should be, you know, fairly similar. Yeah. I think that this is the lens I'll use on my, on my Canon 4 SB. I just still yeah. can't believe that I bought, but, um, when it arrives and, and, and I'll keep the, the, um, Serenar 51.8 on the P because it's a really nice lens on that. Yeah. And, and that honestly, I, that's interesting. That's, I think that's going to be kind of my setup as well is I, you know, I, I think a fifty a fifty is better suited for the P, a fifty millimeter lens, and a thirty five. I, I just think is perfect on the four SB. Oh, and um, you know, you know what the focus throw on this pan color lens is? I just did it, two hundred and sixty degrees. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it almost turns all the way around. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> it's like a mirror. Wow. I like a mirror. I don't say that right, do I? I wish that I'd be saying mirror, Simon. 
I think oh, uh, like M I R. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's Mir, as in um, okay, good. Uh, Russian right. for peace. Yeah. So, Johnny, um, it was interesting what you were saying about shooting with those those cameras there, especially when you're shooting without a meter. Um, that's mm-hmm. that's something I've experienced as well. I've uh, in particular, I, I used a, a Leica one, no, a Leica three C. Um, with okay. with no meter, and I, I deliberately went out without a meter, and I was just shooting black and white, which has got plenty of latitude, and yeah. I I just found it, you know, just great fun to act, and it's liberating to yes. use a, a camera <laughs> without any con, con, constrictions. It's also why I like point and shoot cameras on on film, um, probably more so than metered cameras to some degree. Uh, but yeah, I just just really en- enjoyed shooting in in that way. Yeah, I I, I really agree, and I in. Um, you know, and I, I've, I was an SLR guy kind of forever and forever and have gotten more interested in rangefinders over the years. And, but if I think about it, my favorite SLRs really are also non-metered. And I guess I just, I shot with a Rolleiflex for so long with no meter and I just got used to metering that it, it, I don't know, it, it, to me, it's really simple. I just take a meter reading in the sun and a meter reading in the shade and I keep that in my head and I just kind of like, you know, I just work from there um, generally if I'm shooting unmetered. So I do generally have a hand meter with me, but it's just to take a couple readings. And then if the light changes, I might do it again. But, you know, it's just a, a, a mental calculation, which to me is way less distracting than screwing around looking at the meter readings in the viewfinder. And and generally, I mean, you're, you're going to be pretty close to correct if you've, you know, done maybe a preliminary metering. But then even then, your metering it's not like it changes much day to day it changes a little bit um as the year goes along because the position of the sun and intensity of the sun is different but it i don't know i feel like maybe it it, it just comes from experience but um it's not that hard ultimately to shoot without a meter when you get right down to it if you really think about what you're doing you know and i do i, I agree i find it very liberating and then i just think about other things rather than the camera meter so yeah do the do the thing about shooting without a meter um and i was perfectly happy and i'd do it again with uh mm-hmm. with a, a leica or other other kind of camera uh 35 millimeter yet as as you know i've i've got a hasselblad uh, 500 cm and i've had it now for about four months and there's yeah. a few reasons why i haven't actually used it one of which was i just had so many cameras with filming and yeah. i just needed to get those done before I, I i went out with the hasselblad and i've done that and i still haven't used the hasselblad and um, one of the reasons is I, I feel i really should use it with a light meter but I'm struggling to find a, a light meter that I have I have confidence in, and that includes mm. using one with my phone and uh, a few like, like a Western Euromaster and all of the yeah. things. But I seem to be able to produce different readings all over the place, and I've had the <laughs> and I've had these yeah. these these things checked. Uh, my repair guy has, has, has put them in front of his meter or a light source, uh, a known light source and said, yeah, they're, they're, they're fine. And then you mm-hmm. go out into the world and they do different things. And, and, and the thing is with the, with the Hasselblad, I'm there thinking I've got to get exposure, right? Even if I'm shooting black and white and the circumstances are the same, but I feel like if I'm using that particular camera, I really have to make every, every image count. And, and it's get it just to the point where I'm just scared to use the thing. Yeah. So a friend of mine in, in our photography club who uh, we were out walking around yesterday, he shoots a Hasselblad, and um, and he uses a little uh, Siconic Twin Mate. Uh, um, it's just a needle meter. It's not digital. And um, 
I bought one too because he swears by it, and and I and I really like it, and I've I've never had exposures be off when I've used it. That's interesting because the twin mate. So what's the interesting thing about about all that is that you know meters all have a different uh, pattern metering pattern. They're not all different, but they you know meters are going to have a different angle at which they measure the light right they're all going to be a little bit different so that's going to make them all read a little bit differently pointed at the same thing because they're taking in a different area of light um and i i guess something that i got used to doing a long time ago shooting slide film on the roloflex where it's the same thing your metering needs to be within a really a third of a stop um so what i got used to doing was taking an incident light reading uh, with the you know the dome slid over on the top of my meter, um, and that tends to just average everything out. So it takes all factors in consideration and just averages the amount of light. So to me, that um, people will disagree about how, that being the best way to do it, especially if they've done you know our big adherence to the zone system. But to me, that's always been the easiest way to do it is just take an incident reading in the sunlight, incident reading in the shadow, and then you kind of have those two numbers and then you can just mentally adjust based on the light a little bit. And Carl, your twin mate, if I am remembering correctly, the way it meters is it does a basically an average of both incident and reflective light. So it, it that's probably why um, it's so easy to use, I think, and why you get such consistent results. And you're get you are getting very consistent film exposures, I've noticed. Yeah, but no, it has a um, it has a window on the front. Yeah, that opens up to get a um, reflected. Okay, so it has a little slide across. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, you know, using that that piece, if you slide it across to the incident, it's going to just average the light, which um, kind of evens out. You know, multiple different readings that you might get with different different meters. A meter that will measure incident will let you just kind of average everything. And mm -hmm. I, I do find that to be really useful because it just, you know, what happens is you, in a, in any particular scene, if using a reflective meter, you get hot spots, you get really bright spots, you get really, you know, shadow spots and it, it can just be difficult to meter for. And I think that's for kind of walk around shooting. It, it's the easiest way to meter. I, I find. Part of me was thinking I just need the right meter, but I think I just got to get over Maybe. myself on that one and just start yeah. taking pictures. Um, yeah. But the, the 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 I've got this this uh, thought that keeps going around in my head, and there's a uh, I don't know how how well known he is over in the states, but uh, there was a well still is I should say um, a photographer that was famous for his uh, war photography, Don McCullen, and um, he fa and he he would shoot with uh, a Nikon F I think, and mm. um, but he was famous for using uh, a light meter all of the time. He never trusted, it seemed, well, it, it seemed that he would he would never trust a light meter. And I saw um, him in a part of a documentary a, a couple of years ago and he's shooting digital and he's still using a light meter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, uh, it's it, and it, it just, I, I just, I just feel like, you know, there's, there's, there's gotta be something about using a light meter um, and, and knowing yeah. how to trust the readings of using a light meter that they, I just find that really, really attractive. And that's just, I think that's where I'm, I'm going. I just want to master this, um, but it's also yeah. probably give me an excuse not to use the Hasselblad and make a mess of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway let's um move on to uh, the final 
piece that we're going to talk about, and that's the um, the quick and dirty uh, lens test that I did over the weekend, and and I I just so happened to have a few interesting. Uh, 50 millimeter uh, fast filmeter 50 filmeter I'm trying to say filamina because there's a program in the UK at the moment um, uh, uh, it's a spoof documentary called um, by a, an actress and the, her name is Philomena Kunk <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, I've, got, I've got I've got that in my head at the moment. So um, anyway, so we're back onto uh, what I'm what I'm trying to say. Uh, these fifty fast fifty millimeter uh, lenses, in particular, they're all sonar designs, and well, three of them are definitely sonars, and uh, one of them is uh, probably sonar. It's it's certainly sonar based, um, without without any doubt. Um, and those lenses are. A Carl Zeiss Opton Sonar 50mm 1.5 and then two uh, Soviet versions of that lens, although uh, one of them is older than the Opton and one is younger, but the actual design ultimately was uh, from the Jena factory and pre-war. So whereas the Opton Sonar was is a West German lens after the war. I think the lens I have is probably from the 1950s, I think. So uh, the two Jupiter 3s, which are straight copies, uh, one of them is a LTM 39 uh, lens, which is made in 1967. And uh, the other one, uh, which is really one of the reasons why I did the test, is a 1952 lens. So it's a, it's a, very, it's a very early Jupiter 3, and it's also marked as being uh, coated. So it has that, that um, what we usually say is red pie, um, a red pie signal, a uh, symbol. Uh, but I, I don't actually think it is a, is a pie symbol, but um, I think it's, this is something that Imon, um, with him being Greek and uh, having uh, those characters on his, on his keyboard, whenever he, he types it, he, he sort of shows off that I can type that symbol quite easily. <laughs> um, and he knows what it is. But uh, um, anyway, so it's, it has that pie symbol uh, in red. Now, the story goes that the early uh, Jupiter 3s, uh, possibly up to 1956-1957, used German German optics. Um, I'm not too sure exactly how true that is. Certainly, um, a lot of people say it, and there's going to be an element of truth in that. So, uh, but the the general view is that uh, it goes up to around about 56, 57, using um, ger- German optics. In fact, in a in the in a future points uh, future podcast, uh, we'll be having uh, Vlad from the vintage camera collectors and uh, we'll be we'll be asking that question of him because uh, he is a font of knowledge as far as uh, former soviet union cameras and lenses are concerned so uh, perhaps he can shed a bit of uh, his light on that but the so i've got this lens and i also have um, a seven artisans 50 millimeter f 1.1 which uh, is a it's a modern lens. Uh, I I personally think it's it may well be um, a copy of a very old lens. That's what it feels like to me. Whether that's true or not, don't know. There's a rumor going about that it's a it's a copy of the I don't know if, how you pronounce this, but I'm going to call it uh, Zuno or Zuno, uh, 50 millimeter 1.1, which goes for big money. Um, but it just seems to make sense to me that it would it could be based off that lens because uh, it would be 
very easy to actually replicate it. So, um, but who knows? It may be a completely new design. It might be similar. It might be a hybrid. I know that in the past, Johnny, uh, you've suggested that it, it might be a hybridized sonar. And um, what was it you said? Was it Ultron? Uh, you know what? I need to look at that. Well, we were talking about the design based on that picture on the box, which it sounds like people are hedging that that's actually the design, right? Yeah. Um, because, yeah, it, it, it does look like a basically a, a modified sonar on the box, at least from that optical scheme on there. Hmm. So, But if that's not actually what the design is, it's really hard to say. So, I mean, you, have you cut yours in half yet? Not I thought yet. You were gonna no. Cut, you, no, you're not going to I thought you are going to get the bandsaw out and cut that in half. No, so I, th I think the, the best way to do this was, uh, was with a high-pressure <laughs> high water hose. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, yes, correct. Yeah, right. no you don't get any sharp right. edges then, do you? Yes, so, uh, exactly. So, yeah. um, when, when I get access to one of those and... Uh, uh, they, there are those YouTube videos where they cut these things in half. So uh, I'm not volunteering that my land should uh, go through that. By the way, surely Hamish has an extra one he can have. Yeah, no, that's, that's 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 a, that's a good point. Um, so, yeah, I wanted uh, to ask him about that. Yeah, the show. yeah. Um, actually, in, in talking about future podcast, Hamish is uh, Hamish Gill from 35 MMC is uh, going to be with us when we can when we can tie a date down because at the moment we, we, we're struggling with Carl having business trips going off to California and all, all these other places so uh, so I'm really looking forward to another future podcast where, when we've yeah. got Hamish with us so that, that's gonna be really good um, just yeah. just whether the connection there is that Hamish supplies uh, seven artisan lenses in the UK and uh, and that's where I got mine from and it's uh, it's a cracker so anyway on to the, the test. I've posted uh, the the pictures onto photography with classic lenses, so they're there to be seen. I've, the the post that I put up, I've not actually put any text on really, other than to say you know, what the photographs are and how I took them. And um, one thing I missed off is that I've I focused on the word Nikon on the or Nikon or Nikon, whichever you wish to say, uh, on the on a uh, F three camera. And then, so there's also a Hasselblad uh, photograph in the shop. This is this is not really a great one for uh, for podcasting. <laughs> Um, but uh, so um, although somebody somebody once said that uh, the the pictures are, are far better on radio than they are on television, so, um, so but perhaps that is the case. Here we go. Okay, so I took uh, four photographs um, on the tripod, same exposure settings. I set the uh, the seven artisan lens, which is a one point one lens, and I put it to approximately what I believe to be one point five. And uh, shot an identical scene. So with the, the seven artisans, the Opton Sonar, 1952 Jupiter 3 and the 1967 Jupiter 3. And the results have surprised me um, because up until doing this test, I, I thought that my Opton Sonar was wonderful, uh, just un almost unbeatable, really. And, and it's really disappointed me. Now, it's got to be said that the... The test that I've done is at minimum focus distance, so it could be that the the, the and I've not really used this, the the Opton Sonar at minimum focus distance. I've I've used it you know, for for more normal shooting or just for isolating a subject in the in the landscape and 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 things like that. Uh, and also some night shots where you can get some really nice starbursts in in a way that you can't get with the Jupiters. 
because of the shape of the aperture. If exactly the reason why Carl doesn't like his 51.4 LTM and the shape shape of his aperture, it, it's got the same shape of aperture and it works just brilliantly for starbursts. Um, I have no idea what uh, night shots with starbursts will be like with Carl's uh, balsam affected one. So he might get these might get oh. these starbursts, but he also might get these strange worms um, going all over the screen. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> But, uh, but anyway, going back to this one, the, I, I, I did the test. I, it was the same shot, and I, I took two images of each, um, one at wide open, and I took another one at, at f8. And the, the f8 shots, uh, predictably, there's, there's very little difference between them. They're all good. Uh, it didn't really matter which, which, which camera, which lens that you used, and that just reinforces that, that statement that uh, every, any lens is good at f8. And it's and it's certainly you you lose any kind of character or most kind of most of the character of a lens by the time you've shot to f8. So if you want to know what the character of a lens is about, you need to be shooting at the wider end. Otherwise, they just become very very similar to each other. Um, but there is there's one thing that that is notable um, at f8 and wide open, and this is what came as a real shock to me, is that the the opton sonar the actual contrast. In, in both of those images is is far weaker uh, than than the the two Jupiters and also the seven artisans now I think it's just just it's worth just saying about the seven artisans that it's it is a modern lens it's going to have uh, even if it's using the old design the older design it's still going to have uh, modern uh, coatings so that's gonna that's going to help sharpness and it's going to help um, uh, contrast but I was really expecting more uh, of the Opton Sonar because it, it was my my feeling at least and, and now I've realized now I'm talking anecdotally rather than in, in you know through actual comparative observation um, but the seven artisans is it's it's sharp and it's it's got great contrast and and if you were to just look at the look at the four shots I think you would just you can just say, yeah, that's the one that probably draws your eye in more, and it's it is sharp, and it probably has the best contrast. But that's not really the whole story, um, because the the three other lenses are half the weight. Um, now, part of that is is down to uh, well, it's largely down to the fact that uh, to go to one point one, you you need to put a lot more glass in it, um, and also that well, the Opton Sonar and one of the Jupiters. Um, they don't have a focusing helicoid with them, so that's that's built into the camera originally, or or in my case, it was built into the adapter. Um, but one of the, one of the things that surprised me though um, was that I, I struggled with the 1952 uh, Jupiter III in the Kiev adapter that I used, and it, it didn't actually quite sit properly in it. So it sort of there was a little bit of wobble in there, uh, whereas the uh, the later Opton Sonar that fitted in well. Um, which again, that, that sort of surprised me because I was thinking, well, if a, a Jupiter three should fit a Kiev better than perhaps a, a perhaps an Opton Sonar, but uh, but ultimately, I think yes, I'm disappointed with the Opton Sonar um, in this particular test. I was expecting better contrast and and I would say colours as well. There's uh, and for for me, the two Jupiters uh, perform uh, the best of the old lenses, and uh, and I think that the 1952 Jupiter 3 for me um, is 
is like the star performer there uh, because I'm sort of slightly taking the seven artisans out of the equation a little bit because I think we should, uh, we have to really to some extent because you're talking about something that's that's brand new and made today versus something that's 60 years old. So um, I'm I'm just really, really impressed with that, that 52 Jupiter 3. Is this where I'm supposed to do the devil's advocate thing? Absolutely. Yeah. Tell tell me I'm wrong, Johnny. All right. All right. I'm not, I mean, you know what? I'm not going to say you're wrong because this, this is so, uh, such a subjective thing. Um, uh, but a couple of things I, I, you know, I would have to, all right, I'll play devil's advocate. A couple of things I would say is number one, talking about the Opton sonar. Do you know the serial number of your Opton sonar by chance? It's less than one million, which is, I think, oh, what your answer, uh, your question yeah, is going so to. You, right. So you know where I'm going with this is that that Opton sonars under one million are one million serial number are reputed to be lesser in quality because it was sooner after the war, et cetera, et cetera. That, I don't know. So much of that stuff is conjecture. I I do think that there could be something to that. I. Who knows? <laughs> so that would be my first question is just, you know, have to ask what's the serial. And then the second question would be, what was the lens hood setup that you used for each lens? Um, because they do require a lens hood in, in the way I, my, my understanding of sonars, especially these old sonars is they, they have to be used with a lens hood and hopefully the lens hood that was designed to work with the lens. Cause they were designed to be used with a lens hood. So to me that, that I see that, especially in the F eight shots, um, I would expect at F eight, the Opton to be slightly higher in contrast, but that, that could be, to do with the lens hood. Um, I would say, looking at all of them at F8, I actually think, and this is really subjective because I'm looking at it on my monitor, <laughs> right, on my system, but I, I see that the color rendering is richer on the Opton Sonar at F8 than the other, other three lenses is what I see. Um, so at F1.5, I mean, you know, Honestly, and again, not to poke holes in this sort of test, but I would really love to see what these look like at, let's say, F4 or F2.8, because sonars, to me, an F1.5 sonar, its sweet spot is from right around F, let's say, F2.28 to F4, um, especially for portrait photography. So, you know, I want to say, you know, it's not a useful test, because actually I think it's a very useful test, but it's it's more a useful test for how these lenses render certainly on that particular sensor um, and, you know, how they render wide open for that type of shooting, you know, wide open minimum focus distance, um, which I, may or may not be the way everybody would use them in the real world, but it's, you know, it's an interesting test nonetheless. Um, I, I, at 1.5, I mean, it's, you know, I don't know. It, it's interesting. And again, I'm, I, I, I tend to not pixel peep, you know, tests like this, but it is interesting that they do definitely have a different character. Um, I, I think the seven artisans at 1.5 has a very, uh, kind of uh, odd color rendering. It's not bad. It's just different, you know? Um, and to me that, that looking at all of them, that's the biggest difference I see. And I think, um, just jumping over to the classic lenses page where Simon posted this test as well. Um, Eric Kosluis 
had some nice feedback here speaking about the character of each of these lenses and just noting that you know all of the 1950s lenses were really um designed for black and white photography so the the results may look different if we were doing a mono a monotone test also but it, you know it's it's hard to say um but i do think it's a very interesting test um i i would just maybe say it's hard to draw a lot of really firm conclusions for me based on you know just the the fact the factors of of the test and just that it's very subjective um i guess what it tells me is that i i wouldn't mind owning any of these lenses <laughs> and i do own you know a couple of them myself um so you know I, i'm i'm really glad you did the test uh i think Another thing that might be helpful or useful that we'll include in the podcast links, um, there's a really great series of articles on uh, the Zeiss.com. Uh, it's lensspire.zeiss.com website. Um, and we'll, we'll, a couple of the links that we'll include are, there's, a, there's an excellent white paper from H.H. Uh, Nas about how to read MTF curves, which I got to say, <laughs> this is like that that is some hardcore um optical uh, uh, uh optical sort of rendering judgment stuff here if you read these two white papers it's a lot of reading it's very dense and it it's it's extremely technical uh but he prefaces the 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 paper was saying the rules of optics are complex and nasty so i think i think complex and nasty would be a good way to um to, to say uh, what the results of maybe this test are. <laughs> well, a, 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 couple, a couple of things. Um, and uh, again, I think you probably already know the answer to this one. And that's yeah. uh, no, no HUDs were used in the making of these photographs. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, um, although the, the light was uh, coming from behind the lens. So I'm not too sure right. how much that would uh, really match on that one. But my, my biggest critic, I mean, I, I like the photographs I, I, and I think they're all absolutely fine. And yeah. I deliberately yeah. didn't uh, provide close-ups because I, I, I think you can see the difference um, when they they side by side uh, yeah. with, with color rendering, but the 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 thing that disappointed me most about the Opton was was the it, it glowed. Um, all the photographs, by the way, were, as I think I already mentioned they were focused on the uh, on the pentaprism of the of the Nikon, and uh, it easily had more glow. In fact, it it, it was to the point where. Uh, when I looked at the pictures, I thought, "Have I got these pictures in the wrong order?" And I went back out and shot them again, and the, and it was it was consistent. Um, so so that that was that was that was disappointing. But but it, it's it's it, as I say, I think going back to what I said earlier on, I think that these this, these tests are um, are interesting for the sake of them. Um, but when I've tried that Opton Sonar against you know in in a normal perhaps a more normal tele, uh, photograph where, where you're not working at minimum focus distance. I, I do, I, I felt that it was uh, better than my uh, previous Jupiter at, at, at the time. Whereas uh, at minimum focus, it's just giving me a different result. And it could well be that they're just more optimized. It's more optimized for a, a different kind of shot, perhaps. That to me, the lens with the most glow in this test is the seven artisans at 1.5. I mean, I'm looking at both of them at a hundred percent on my monitor and actually, it's it, it depends, I guess, where you, what exactly you're looking at. Just I'm um, looking at the the, the yeah. word Nikon. <laughs> okay, and I'm looking at the word Hasselblad, <laughs> and and 
there's if you look at those two it seems to me that the seven artisans has at least as much glow it's just a kind of a slightly different glow and it it may be focus point and it may be the optical properties of the of the lens but i'm even if i look at like f3 like the f3 marker on the lens that the seven artisans and the opton are pretty much up there with in terms of glow it's just a slightly different glow and it could be a slightly different focus point where and you know millimeters are going to matter with something like this for sure when they're wide open so yeah, that's that's uh, exactly what it anyway. is it's, it is a it is a focus point difference there that, yeah that is, uh, yeah it could be anyway yeah. Interesting. A very interesting test, though. I think it's a. I think it's. It is really kind of interesting to see the results. Okay. Well, I, I think we'll round things off there. Uh, the the post is still up on photography with classic lenses. So if uh, anybody wants to make any comments on there, please do. Uh, we'll be interested, and uh, we'll chances are we'll probably talk about this again uh, next week. And uh, any 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 comments that have arisen from it. So uh, to round things off then, uh, Johnny, how can people keep up with you and follow you on social media? Uh, you'll find me, of course, in the Photography of Classic Lenses Facebook group. I am on Instagram at at Sisson Photography, posting there most days. And also most days you will find me in the, the camera sales department at Central Camera Company in Chicago. Uh, and also just want to mention again, uh, in the Classic Lenses Instagram uh, is also up and running and hashtag your Instagram shots with, with uh, hashtag Classic Lenses for a chance to be featured there. And Cole? Okay, um, on Instagram is Carl Havens, all lowercase with an underscore in between. And on um, Flickr, Carl Havens is my name. And then, of course, on the Photography of the Classic Lenses Facebook page. And I'm in a few places. I'm on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic. Uh, Flickr, I'm on as Simon Forster. You can find my eBay shop by doing the seller search for It's Fozzy. Um, I have a website, uh, www.simonforster.co.uk. Sorry, simonforsterphotographic.co.uk. Um, and don't forget, we have an email, email address. Uh, which is uh, so far unused. Um, so uh, if you've got any comments or questions that you'd uh, like to, uh, or anything you want read out in the show, potentially, um, just give us a, a, drop us an email to classiclensespodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us all on the Facebook group, Photography with Classic Lenses. I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast, and it'd be great if you can join us again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.